Welcome to episode 86 of Closer Mentality. I'm your host, Julia Mellet. I've conducted hundreds of interviews throughout my career, and this platform has brought me to the most incredible people. Today's episode, though, is one I will remember for a while. This is the story of Sam Duprat. Duprat grew up in a family of recreational skiers, but the emphasis always went to training his older sister, Jamie. The Duprats moved to the Park City area to get Jamie advanced opportunities, and her little brother Sam followed. The Duprats enrolled their son in the Mighty Mites, a skiing club for kids learning how to traverse the mountain. It was there that the divide began. Between moguls and racing, both Duprat kids opted for speed. And we kind of got into racing, and then that brought us to Utah, where this school was more set up. My mom was um, concerned about school and wanted to make sure I was still getting a good education. So we ended up in Utah where they have, you know, ski specific schools. Um, and both my sister and I went through high school in Utah and then we both decided to stay and both skied for University of Utah. They were really a high-end program um, then and they actually recruited my sister. Um, and the deal was they had to take me as well <laughs> if they got my sister. Uh, so I kind of rode the coattails of that one. and. Um, I guess I proved my worth in the end, but uh, they, I guess I, I would say the head coach at the time recruited my sister and I, I tagged along and that's how that worked out. Um, they were a really strong program at the time, um, probably the best in the country. And obviously that shifted in different ways over the years, but that's how I ended up in Park City. By the time Sam enrolled at Utah, he already had three seasons of work under his belt with the United States ski team. And Jamie, three years his senior, was nearing graduation. Sam had already begun to cement himself on the national stage at age 19, having been named to the U.S. World Junior Alpine Championship team in 2013. Uh, So that was my breakout season. So I went to the national team tryout camp in Mount Bachelor, and I was kind of the underdog, um, knowing my rankings weren't very good, but they saw me ski and they thought I was a decent skier, so they invited me. I kind of knew I wasn't going to make it that year. This would have been before the 20, before I made World Juniors. So I was still skiing on the Park City Ski Team the next year. So I didn't make the national team that year. Um, but then I had uh, kind of my breakout season. Uh, it's called the Noram Cup. If you, as an analogy for um, baseball, it would be, I guess, double A baseball. So you have the major leagues, which is World Cup, Europa Cup is triple A, and um, Norams are kind of double A. Uh, and Noram Cups, I mean, anyone can race them any age. And as a pretty young athlete, I started breaking into the top 15, top 10. Um, so that qualified me for the World Juniors. And basically the U.S. team took me on as what's called an invitee that year. So you get to travel and race with them, but you're you're paying your way. Um, and you're kind of, you're still kind of an outsider, but you know, they give you a cool jacket and tell you you can come to some camps. And um, that, was, that was definitely my breakout year. I went to Europe, I raced a few Europa Cups, which from my age, I was by far the youngest um, and the smallest, and it was very eye-opening to me to see European ski racing. Um, it's a different level, and they take they do it very differently. And um, but I did pretty well, and then World Juniors, I actually did really well for my age because I was young um, that year. His final at World Juniors gained him notoriety and added to stellar finishes in the Super G and Giant Slalom, 
He finished third in the Noram downhill competition, effectively making him the fifth fastest U.S. competitor. The U.S. ski team promptly selected he and 25 other male competitors to join the United States developmental system. Gaining recognition from the U.S. governing body was exactly what Duprat needed, but putting all his eggs in one basket led to anxiety he'd never encountered before. He entered the University of Utah's training concurrently and found a stark disconnect between the natural intensities of training. When your life is only ski racing, it's you basically break down with anxiety of like, oh, I didn't do well today. I have to do well tomorrow because all you have in life is ski racing, and you we literally have. One minute ski runs to beat a hundred other people, and one mistake is a horrible day. You know, if you do one bad turn, you're gonna, you know, you, you don't stand a chance.、Um, so it's this really small amount of time to have a perfect performance, and we spend so much time making sure we're ready, and so much time worried about it, and so much time preparing for it, and it's just. When it doesn't come together, and it cannot come together for an entire season, like you guys have a bad season just based off luck or based off you know not being in the right mental space, and、um, it just it wore me down.、Um, it I got kind of thrown into upper level skiing faster than if I were to do it again, I would have stayed at the Noram longer before I went to the Europa Cup,、um, just to you know. Settle in, build my confidence, and be in the right mental headspace, as opposed to just being like, "Oh, you did great in this one race. You know, we'll move you up to, to the next level." And then I just went and got my ass kicked. Like, I mean, I was having good runs and getting seventy eighth place, and I was just like, "What?" You know, it was demoralizing in it, and、um, took a lot of wind out of my sails. And what college did for me, so I got to college, and it's the way college ski racing set up is more of a team event.、Um, if you do well, you help the team. If you don't do well, the team helps you. Um, and I had a social life. I was advancing, you know,、um, my education, and I had all these things that were going for me. So if I had a bad day skiing, I could go, you know, and study and feel like I got something out of my day.、Um, whereas if you're just racing and you have a bad day, you're like, oh, this day was ruined, you know.、Um, so I had a, I, I found, I guess, myself in in college.、Uh, I found myself. Much more at ease mentally with my performance, and my first year in college was my best year ski racing ever.、Um, and I attribute all that to like still having the intensity of wanting to be a World Cup skier, but also having the, I guess, the releases of a social life and advancing in other aspects of my life. You know, it's tough、um, traveling that much and missing that much school, and not you know you don't really get the social life, so it's kind of a different. Kind of a different、um, way of going about it, as opposed to what I did. I basically kind of ran dry on the U.S. team, got kicked off. I mean, I, I didn't make the criteria to be on the U.S. team anymore, so I went to college. Kind of, I mean, it, it was what I wanted to do, but it was also,、um, you know, I didn't really have any other options. And so I won't sit here and say that I like walked away from the ski team, you know. <laughs>、um, but. I would say that a lot of athletes now are starting to look at college as more of a, a jump. The one thing I will say is that college sh- shows you a lot of other things in life, and it changes a lot of athletes' passions. Duprat's freshman year skiing for the Utes, he was 23 years old. I was definitely on the older side.、Um, college skiers notoriously are pretty old because we take gap years in between college、um, or in between high school and college. But I was like, I was basically a junior, senior age as a freshman, sophomore, you know.、Um, so 
but there were other athletes. Uh, I mean, my best friend Dominic Demshaw was racing in the Olympics for Australia. Uh, Ronnie Remy's on the World Cup tour. She was my teammate. Um, Abby Gent had raced World Cups. She was on my team. Uh, I'm sure I'm missing some, but everyone was like a very high level skiing. Like college skiing is extremely competitive. Um, it is it is some of the best skiers in the world. Whether they're you know been on the World Cup scene and got pushed down or pushing up to the World Cup scene, it's kind of it's it's very competitive. So which makes it really cool and unique. Duprat was awarded a full scholarship ahead of his sophomore season. He'd grown up physically and emotionally and felt ready to work toward getting back to the U.S. ski team. I've always been probably around 165 to 185 pounds. And I mean, the best downhill in the world is 230 pounds. And it's a gravity sport. And so I just get beaten sections just by science. <laughs> um, so that was one big one. I got stronger, I got bigger. Um, and then also just like growing up in the sense that like life isn't ski racing, like ski racing's fun, ski racing, it's an entertainment. It's all sports are entertainment in the end, right? And it helped me take a step back and understand that like, I was less intense about skiing and like um, less worried about it, I guess. So like that maturity of like, there's so much more to life than sport while sport's super fun. And I intend to do it as long as I possibly can. It's not the end all be all. And so it kind of gave me the right perspective I needed to come back and you know, if I was good, then it's awesome. If I was bad, then, you know, whatever we learn from it, we move on and we get better. Duprat was excelling on the college circuit, but the U.S. ski team didn't take him back as easily as he had anticipated. Opting for college had aged Duprat's chances. The U.S. team wants to get a hold of kids when they're about, you know, 18, 19 and push them up through their system, their development system. And if someone decides to go to school, they kind of write them off in a way. Not fully, um, but the college ski races aren't as challenging as international ski races. And they don't prepare you in the same way that international ski races prepare you for the World Cup. Um, they're easier, they're easier slopes, they're easier snow conditions, they're easier course sets. Um, it's basically like racing NASCAR to Formula One, right? Like one's going in a circle and one's doing a bunch of turns. And that's kind of a weird analogy, but it, <clears throat> There's pros and cons to every situation, right? And I had skied a lot of really challenging races in Europe. Um, so I felt that I had that aspect developed in my skiing. Like I knew what to expect and I knew how to handle that sort of stuff. But what college teaches you is totally different, right? It teaches you how to be your own person. It teaches you how to you know, manage your time. It teaches you that life is about all sorts of things, not just ski racing. And um, But your pure development as a, a ski racing athlete stalls out a little bit. You don't progress as much purely as an athlete in college. And there's kind of no way to say that differently. I think if college teams improved, I think there could be a way, um, but it would take a lot of money and it would take a lot of time. Um, but World Cup racing is so much more challenging that college doesn't physically prepare you for it. So after college, I did an independent year um, with a coach, Cody Marshall, who was an ex-World Cup skier, and my friend Tanner Farrow, who skied for the University of Denver. Um, and we did our entire year on our own, paying our way, like uh, went to Chile, did a bunch of fundraising, um, had a great prep period, and then Tanner crashed and dislocated his collarbone. So he missed the entire beginning of the season. And then I started off really strong. I won a bunch of norms right off the bat. 
And then we went over to Europe and Tanner just had gotten healthy. Um, and we went to this Europa Cup at this notorious race called Kitzbühel. Um, it's the biggest race of the year, like 100,000 fans. Um, and they do a Europa Cup before the World Cup. The World Cup is when the fan, no one's at the Europa Cup, but uh, it's a very challenging hill. And I did pretty well in that race. And I asked the World Cup staff if I could race the World Cup coming up. And it was quite the debate. <laughs> and in the end, they let, they gave me a shot. And I scored my first World Cup points, which is a top 30 in World Cup, which, I mean, it doesn't sound great, but it's a, it's a, it was a big stepping stone in my in my career. So I got 29th in my first World Cup Super G at Kitzbühel. Um, and I was only the third American that year to score in Super G, third or fourth. Um, so basically that put me into like the fourth best Super G skier in the US at the time. Uh, we, there was one more World Cup race. I raced that. Um, I was really fast in sections, but had one big mistake and uh, ended up pretty far down the, down the board. But um, I showed a lot of speed in that race. And so after that, those two races, I was like, oh man, like there's no way I'm not uh, like, I'm gonna make the team again, sweet. And then that year, they didn't name me, they named me as an invitee. Um, so that was the end of 2019. Um, so they let me, they said I could train with the team, but uh, I wasn't, I had to pay my way. And if they had too many numbers, then I wouldn't get invited. Um, so I got invited to half the camps before the season that year and had to pay my way, which was fine, but it wasn't exactly what I was hoping for because it was kind of like last second, you know, um, oh, you can't come to this one because we have too many people. And that proved more challenging almost than doing it on my own. Does that make sense? Because then I could just like have a plan and stick to it. I was kind of at their mercy. Um, but then the season was great. Uh, started off um, okay. And then I top 30 in Val Gardena. I got 22nd in Val Gardena, um, which is my best result to date. I was really proud of that one. And then after that season, I got named back to the B team officially and was fully supported. Duprat's second stint with the U.S. ski team was almost immediately plagued by a right LCL tear sustained in Austria. Luckily, or rather fortuitously, COVID struck at the beginning of 2020 and halted all competition. Duprat focused diligently on his rehab in an effort to take his mind off the indefinite closures. He returned to snow in a few months, the competition remained shuttered. When Duprat and the U.S. Alpine ski team took to the mountains again, Duprat found himself standing at the top of a French mountain with a mere handful of practices under his belt and World Cup points on the line. So I kicked out of the first start in Val d'Isere, France, with almost no days of practice. Um, I think I had three days of Super G training and four days of downhill training when I kicked out of the first World Cup, which is borderline dangerous, but it was my own decision. I mean, no one was stopping me from racing at that point, <laughs> you know. Um, but uh, COVID proved really difficult. I seemed to get kind of the brunt of that. So I kicked out of the gate 2020 really unprepared. Um, and I also had stress fractures in my L4 vertebrae. So I was really hurting with my back. So I was skiing these ridiculous back braces. <laughs> so I was trying to ski through a bunch of pain, um, which looking back on proved uh, almost, or proved very, very poor decision, <laughs> I would say. At this point, the U.S. Alpine ski team was living out of duffel bags as COVID-19 continued to rage. The lockdowns made it nearly impossible to travel back to the United States, 
and Duprat and the team were getting deeper into a difficult European leg. Across the French border, in Val Gardena, Italy, Duprat was met with the most significant hardship he'd faced to date. December 2020, Duprat was preparing for a downhill race when disaster struck. So that was a, it was a downhill training run. So before World Cup downhill races, you get two training runs down the hill. Um, I'd already been told that I wasn't racing the downhill. So I was kind of just doing it for practice for the Super G. Um, and I think prior to that crash, I had had a mistake. So I knew I was going slow. Like I knew my time wasn't great. So I kind of backed off the gas pedal and in adrenaline sports that can be the ultimate demise because <laughs> you kind of like zoom out of your focus if that makes sense like usually you have you know extreme tunnel vision you're not really thinking about what's going on and i remember like zooming out uh kind of going into that section that section is really challenging it's called the cha slots um and there's a bunch of jumps that you basically they're like these double jumps that you have to gap and then land and then absorb they're like these triple three three rollers in a row and you jump them gap it land and then have to absorb one and it was the last one. It was the very last roll. And I just hit a patch of ice and I wasn't focused enough to kind of save it. And then I ended up actually straddling the gate. Um, and it's a pretty slow section, of course. I was probably going like 60. Um, but I just remember, yeah, not being overly focused and then and then doing that and then kind of zooming back into focus and being like, oh, shit, like, here we go. Um, I got to save this. But um the left leg broke pretty much immediately and stopped all hope for saving it. <laughs> if you have a weak stomach, I would suggest skipping ahead to 1946. So, I mean, that one, it was really loud. Wow. Uh, yeah, the analogy I use is it sounded like um, if you're camping and you have a really long stick and you go and like hit it against a tree to break it to make firewood, it like sounded like that cracking. And I, I knew immediately because I folded on top of it. Um, I felt it break, heard it break, but there was no pain right away, right? Like I wasn't like screaming already, but I rolled onto my back and it looked like cooked spaghetti. You know, you could see it in the video, right? Um, so I knew the left leg broke immediately. And at that point I kind of gave up. Sometimes you can like save it-ish, like if you're kind of rolling that direction, but um, I kind of just tried to like tuck and roll at that point, <laughs> um, knowing that that wasn't gonna, that wasn't gonna hold up against much pressure. Um, but then I was obviously ho not hoping to break the right leg too, but, uh, rolled over a few times and then the ski didn't come off and it started to spin. Um, and I felt that one, I didn't hear that one, but it, that one, I felt pretty good. Um, it happened pretty late in the crash I think it was like roll three or I kind of, when I roll over myself the second or third time, you see it kind of spin in the video when I'm on my back. Um, and then I hit the fence uh and kind of like came to rest and <laughs> immediately to rip my gloves off you can kind of see in the video i was like i got like crazy hot and started sweating and i was like oh yeah definitely broke my legs and then i sat up to look at them and my right my right leg was um the ski boot was like completely backwards so like my toe box was in the snow with my knee going up right so my foot was completely backwards and my left one was like um just to my side, I could touch the toes of my my foot uh, with my knee going straight down. Um, and then uh, an Italian man, man named Antonio came up and started. He was the first one there. He's a Carbonari, which is like uh, basically like a military of Italy. 
and he started crying and he started petting my head and my tears were hitting my forehead. <laughs> he was like, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It was quite the experience. Um, but luckily shock is an amazing thing. And I really, I didn't have much pain until they started to move me around. A few of my coaches came down. <laughs> Some of them didn't really have the stomach for it. So they stayed a little ways away. Uh, Coach Ben Black was standing there the whole time talking to me and making some jokes. Um, it was nice to like see familiar faces. Uh, Antonio quit crying, which was good. <laughs> um, and they, I mean, I obviously asked for pain medication from my best understanding. I didn't get any for a while. Um, they put me in a tarp. Uh, they put me in a tarp because my legs were going in such different directions to like kind of straighten them out. And they picked me up to put me into the helicopter. Um, and the helicopter was like, they just lower the lady down with a basket. So they inched me onto a tarp and then they picked the tarp up and I remember my legs sliding into place. Like, so it was like up on the, the wall of the tarp and it kind of like slid down and dropped a loud F-bomb and, <laughs> and passed out from pain for a few minutes. Um, when I woke up, I was like halfway up uh, in the helicopter. Um, and the lady said that we were gonna land just off the hill because there were still more racers to come. So they just pulled me right off to the side of the hill and we landed and she opened me back up and she's like, I'm gonna give you something for the pain medication or for pain and because we have to reset your legs. Um, and then my PT was there. I don't really remember this part, but then they gave me, I think enough ketamine to kill a horse. <laughs> and uh, then I woke up butt naked with my ski boots on in a CAT scan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they were very worried about my spine. So that was my first come to moment as I sat up on in a CAT scan, like freaking out. Uh, don't really remember much after that. And then uh, my surgery was over nine hours. Um, and I woke up once on the surgery table because I, I was throwing up and I had like the auction thing and I threw up on the operating table. And um, I remember a bunch of people like hitting me with towels and like, <laughs> and yeah, that was a pretty grim moment. But, and then I just came to it in the hospital bed next to a guy named Fabrizio in the Bolzano hospital. <laughs> Duprat had broken his left tibia in three places, his left fibula in two. His right tibia and fibula proved a more traditional break, a fracture that twisted close to his ankle. Duprat woke up in an Italian hospital, unable to speak the language, recovering from the most severe injury of the U.S. ski team's season up to that point. The procedures were done by Italian medical professionals, but Duprat had U.S. ski team doctor Cody Timpton by his side when he woke up from the surgery. He was by my side when I came out. Of, I, I think I woke up at four in the morning or something, and he was standing there waiting for me. Um, his first thoughts, he was like, left leg was mangled, but they did an amazing job with it. Your left leg looks great. Um, the right leg, due to how long the left leg took, it was an easy-ish fix, but they didn't have enough time to fix it right. So they put in like temporary plates. Um, and he's like, that one, you're probably gonna have to redo. Um, then he had to leave because the race was happening that morning. So he drove back up to the hill to in case someone else got hurt. And then no one in the hospital spoke English. Um, I never saw my surgeon again. The surgeon that did it happened to just be at the race. Uh, wasn't a surgeon in that hospital, but he was an Italian surgeon. Um, never saw him again. And he, this old guy came in and was checking on me and just like checking, you know, where all the stitches were and stuff. But yeah, I had to use Google Translate to kind of know what was going on and like trying to figure out how to get out of the hospital. And 
I think I'm, I'm usually a pretty level-headed guy, but I was I was losing it there by the end of that hospital stay. The American surgeon that was there said that like, oh no, you'll race again. The Italian doc was like, oh yeah, no, no chance. So you'll never race again. Um, so I was pretty ready for it to be over. And like in a weird way, like when I was lying in the snow there, it was kind of a relief. Like it was like, oh, this is my way out. Like, you know, I wasn't not good enough to make the Olympics. It wasn't, you know, it was just like, I got injured and I couldn't do it. You know, it was like, oh, poor me. Um, but it was like this weird sense of relief. Due to COVID-19 protocol, none of the U.S. ski team were able to visit Duprat during his recovery at Balzano General Hospital. My ski coach snuck in um, just real quick <laughs> to say hi. But yeah, no one could see me because of COVID. Had a roommate. Um, he was awesome. <laughs> uh, broke his kneecap in a motorcycle accident, but we got along with uh, Google Translate, had some fun. Um, but yeah, I was pretty much just sitting there. Uh, I think I had my computer and phone and seven days of kind of lying there hitting the hitting the morphine button, you know. <laughs> International medevac flights couldn't get to Pratt home until January 1st, nearly a week longer than he had intended. Without direct commercial flights, which were strict and not willing to work with him, he had to maneuver what would turn into a quad country spanning, 21-hour travel experience back to the U.S. An ambulance picked me up in Bolzano, drove me to Innsbruck, got in a plane from Innsbruck to Iceland, Reykjavik, Iceland. Canadian plane landed. They took me out of the plane, set me on the tarmac. I was strapped to a backboard. The plane drove away said bye. Another plane pulled up, opened the door and goes, oh, are you Sam? I was like, yeah, I'm on, flying on a runway, strapped to a board. And they hop out, throw me in the thing and off we go. Uh, then we landed in like the Northern Territory of Canada and then Edmonton and then Salt Lake. The ambulance returned him back to his parents' front door in Salt Lake City. I, I was kind of like coming to terms with like being done. Um, and then I went into get my right leg revised um, with a surgeon in Utah. He was a really good trauma surgeon. He actually had seen my case um, before I even got in there, uh, just like to look at the right leg and how it could be fixed. And he did a great job. And when I came out of surgery, he's like, oh, you're gonna be totally fine. Like you can use definitely race again. A perfect team of physical therapists and lifting coaches coaxed Duprat through grueling hours of PT. They believed he would return to the snow even when, at times, he didn't believe in his own resilience. They were so patient and so supportive, and then they just stoked the fire to eventually get to where it was like, all right, I'm doing this thing. And, um, it was the perfect recipe. Like, I wouldn't I wouldn't have kept going if, I, if those people weren't around. They've helped me, like, almost be proud of my story and, like, to come back, like, no matter how well I do, um, just to, like, know that, you know, two broken legs doesn't doesn't stop life you know there's people that have had way worse that you know live you know do epic things in life and like that's all that that's all the motivation you need is that um injuries don't stop anything duprat was diligent with his rehab process once again adding that small increments of success became the building blocks to bring him back it changed a lot for me so at first it was almost easy because it was like in terms of rehab, it was just like, oh, I just want to like be able to play sports again. Like I just want to be able to play basketball and go golfing. And like, that's where I w initially started. That's where I was at. Um, my, you know, skiing wasn't even in my head. And that was a blessing in disguise in the sense of just like, I was calm about it. Um, there wasn't any urgency to get back. Um, and then as the seeds started to get planted in my head about racing again, 
I started really working with a psychologist um, because I knew that I was going to have some demons in there about, you know, if you hear your legs break or see them do what they do, it's really hard to trust your body again. Um, especially in like a sport like mine, it's like, it's, you're using your body to fight, you know, the mountain. Um, and if your body can't hold up against it, then it's not, it's not a good thing. And it, you lose a lot of confidence. So I worked with this great, um, sports psych, um, and she named Ricky and she, and she was super patient with me again. And we kind of just worked through everything. Um, she helped me get to where I could watch the crash comfortably, talk about the crash comfortably. Um, and I was more focused on that than I was like timeline. I was so settled in for it to be a long recovery. I think one thing with um, ACLs and stuff is it's like, oh, it's, you know, six to nine months, but it's like, so it's enough to maybe like get back for next season or you have this like weird urgency. Whereas I was like, ah, oh, you know, I'm coming back from two broken legs. It's gonna take me forever. So I just kind of like settled in. So I really, really didn't struggle with that aspect. Um, and another thing that really helped me and this is a horrible thing to say but <laughs> my girlfriend Alice Merriweather um, she was struggling with an eating disorder at the time so I, I a lot of my energy went towards being there for her and being with her and that, that and that really helped me in my own recovery um, and I think it helped her in her recovery and then she ended up actually breaking her leg when she got back on snow so we got to rehab broken legs together which is not very heartwarming, but it was really great to, to have somebody to do it with, you know? And it was like, there's no pity in that. Like you don't get any pity. So you kind of just um, made it easier to just, I guess, you know, put the pants on in the morning and go to go to work at rehab because you're both doing it. <laughs> so I skied, I skied last winter, but I skied very lightly. Like um, I mean, the analogy would be like if a football player just like got on the field and like through some passes like I kind of just slid around made some arcs did some training but like really light training um on easy snow easy conditions um and my body held up great uh, I went to Mammoth in May and that camp went really well um but I'm still like doing rehab every day because I still have a lot of little muscles in my legs that don't do much that we're trying to like get working again. A lot of the big muscles are back to normal strength, but a lot of little stuff like stabilizers and whatnot aren't quite ready. Um, and my power numbers, so like my ability to jump is really down still. My strength is high, so I'm safe to ski, but like um, in terms of like power um, output, I'm below where I was when I crashed. So we're still working on stuff. Like I'm still... I would say in the rehab process because I'm trying to get back to being better than I was. Um, so that, I don't think that really ever ends. Um, I don't know if it ends for anyone that has, you know, an injury. You always, you know, even if you do an ACL, you still have soreness and you're still, you know, you ice your knee and you, you maybe do a little less reps, um, just like save it a little bit. Um, but I wasn't ready for Mammoth, but it went so well. Like I showed up and I started skiing and I was immediately pretty fast. Um, and that was like such a relief because I did, I, I worked really hard with Ricky and sports psych to be mentally prepared, but like you still, there's still a lot of unknowns um, and everything kind of fell into place in Mammoth and like the unknowns were fine. If that makes sense. Like I, I guess I was prepared. I didn't think I was prepared, but I was, if that makes sense. And then I went to New Zealand and the camp went up, was awesome. And I skied, you know, every day and, um struggle through some pain just from you know chronic pain of having metal in your legs and whatnot and um 
but I found that I was, I wasn't as mentally strong as I wanted to be. Um, I still had too much, I guess, fluctuation of good days and bad days and, um, being fast and not being very fast. And I found days when it was the dark, I really didn't have the guts to kind of, to ski hard when I couldn't see much, you know? And, um, so that's something I'm, I'm starting to work on now. Uh, I found, you know, I wrote down all of these weaknesses that I felt, um, that I need to work on because you're going to be, you know, the best of your sport. These are things that you can't, that you can't have, I guess, dents in your armor from that, you know, you have to figure them out. So got a long ways to go still, I guess is the short answer. Preparing his mind to build back the trust in his muscle memory is a deep-seated issue for Duprat, one he's still working through. You know, I've been like, oh, I can't jump. Like, are you kidding me? It's only been, you know, eight months since I broke both my legs. There's no way I can jump. And then you jump and you're like, oh, that was totally fine. And then you're just on your way. You know, so I need more moments like that doing my sport where, you know, even if I get out of balance and almost crash and save it, you know, then it's like, oh, I can save it. Like, I'm totally fine. Let's keep going, you know. Um, so I want repetition. The most important thing for me is repetition in my sport and learning to trust myself again that, like, you know, that my body's not just going to break on me again. And if it does, it's not actually a horrible thing. <laughs> it sucks, but it's not the end of the world. But mentally, I think I have a lot of work to do. I think that's kind of the top of my mind is I got to figure out how to get into the right headspace. Um, and if the old headspace is the right headspace, you know, it might not be. Um, I might need to rebuild that from the ground up, which I'm looking forward to coming up. We're going to Colorado for a month long camp. So that'll be definitely top of the mind. Um, during that, that block. Is something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? Regardless if you have a clinical mental health issue like depression or anxiety, or if you're just a human in this world going through a hard time, therapy can give you the tools to approach your life in a positive way. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp's mission is to make therapy more affordable and more accessible. This is an important mission because finding a therapist can be really hard, especially when you're limited to the options in your area. BetterHelp is a platform that makes finding a therapist easier because it's online, it's remote, and by filling out a few questions, BetterHelp can match you to a professional therapist in as little as a few days. It's easy to sign up and get matched with a therapist. If this sounds like something that could help you, there's a link in the show notes to get you started on your therapy journey. Clicking that link helps support this podcast, but it also gets you 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. Because finding a therapist is a little like dating. If you don't really fit with a therapist matched with you, it's easy and free to switch therapists without stressing about insurance, who's in your network, or anything like that. Click the link in the show notes or visit betterhelp.com forward slash closer mentality. That's betterhelp.com forward slash closer mentality. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. Did you know that you can purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore? With Libro FM, you can pick from more than 325,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from real booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a different story, one that supports your local community. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to squeeze more reading into your busy life. Listen with the free Libro FM app while you do chores, walk the dog, or relax at home. 
If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations from the people who know best, booksellers. Closer Mentality has partnered with Libro FM on a special offer. Through the link in the show notes, you can get two audiobooks on Libro FM for the price of one with your first month of membership. Thanks to Libro FM for sponsoring this podcast. Are you an athlete rehabbing from an injury? Are you a coach or athletic trainer seeking additional support for your injured athlete toolkits? KT Tape has exactly what you need. KT Tape is a rehabilitation tape that helps stabilize and compress sensitive areas of the body during exercise. Apply KT Tape to an area either in pain or in recovery and feel the difference. KT Tape is comfortable, stable, and long-wearing. There's tape for all modes of action, from gentle, which is safe for easy activity and everyday use, to pro-extreme, for athletes in moderate to high-impact exercise. KT Tape makes water-resistant tape as well, for more adaptable rehabilitation implementation. KT Tape caters to lifelong athletes and focuses on reducing muscle soreness for all users when worn during exercise and up to 48 hours post. If you feel like you or your athletic department could use KT Tape, go to the link in the show notes. The links to BetterHelp.com, FM, and KT Tape are all down in the show notes. Since Sam and I conducted this interview in 2022, he's fully returned to the slopes and the U.S. Alpine Ski B team. He's back representing Team USA in the downhill, Super G, and Giant Slalom. He's only watched a video of his crash a handful of times. The broadcast of his crash is linked in the show notes for any listeners interested in kinesiology or sport injury. Once again, I wouldn't suggest it to anyone with a squeamish stomach. You can watch Sam and I's full interview in the Closer Mentality Uncensored YouTube channel and follow Sam's journey with the Alpine Ski Team on Instagram at It's Literally Sam. Go to Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok to give at Closer Mental a follow as well. As an aside, I am perpetually blown away by winter sport athletes and their abilities to channel resiliency. Winter sport athletes have quickly become some of my favorite stories to share, and I'm so grateful to Sam for sharing his with this podcast. Thanks for listening to episode 86 of Closer Mentality. As always, I'm your host, Julia Mellett. See you next week. Mm-hmm.